1: Today's guest has appeared in nearly hundred and fifty movies and TV shows over the course of his career. But for me, it's his completely improvised performances, like this one from Best in Show, that make him a comedy master.
0: That doorman was approximately Mediterranean-type. Oh, say. They're gonna trim their nose. Hi! May I help you? Vanderhoof. V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-F. Okay, non-smoking, uh, two nights. We have you down for Queen. What are you suggesting, shh, shh, my it. dear man? Do you want to put this on a credit card? Oh, yes. Talk to Daddy. Mm. Seen enough dogs today, have you? Dogs, yes. Big show. There's a lot of them here in the hotel. Wow. Dogs. A lot of pretty dogs. A lot in them here in the lobby.
1: <laughs> this is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this week I am joined by one of the most prolific and accomplished comedy character actors around, John Michael Higgins. John is probably best known for his roles in Christopher Guest movies like Best in Show and A Mighty Wind and For Your Consideration. But he's had an utterly fascinating journey over the last three decades and has just a ton of wisdom to share about acting, comedy, and show business. Now he's starring as Principal Ronald Todman, a.k.a. the new Mr. Belding, in Peacock's Saved by the Bell reboot. And he somehow manages to bring as much grounded humor and warmth to that role as he's brought to everything else. We had so much to talk about in this episode, so let's just get to it now. Here's my conversation with John Michael Higgins. Have you been doing a lot of these interviews uh, recently to...
0: Yes, I've done a few. Yeah, I guess I'm re- I've reached that point in my career where I have to do general interviews. <laughs> it's, not so, it's not so much pro- <laughs> project related. It's more like, what the hell? <laughs> it's, like, it's the big questions. Like, I actually, I did a masterclass yesterday at a local arts conservatory on Zoom, and I almost refused because I just (laughs) like every time I've done if I do an acting class or something I I need uh, you know acting is an entirely physical activity to me speech is a physical activity so I just thought I I need to be in the room with people you can't it's not a digital (laughs) the point about stage acting is that it's not digital it's totally analog (laughs) and I just thought I can't teach that way I did it anyway and it was fine but you know basically they started asking me Toward the end, you know, it was a QA part, and a part. And a couple, of, you know, these were young people. They're high schoolers. And they were so fresh and interesting and all that. These giant existential questions came up at the end, like which what? I was not prepared for. I don't know. It's like, um, what is it, what has it meant for you to spend your life being an actor? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm trying to deliver for them. And so I started to, like, try to get a good, you know, honest answer. And I'm not a big... Emote her, uh, you know, and I, I was like, I had to stop myself because I started to cry. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? And I wrote an apology this morning to the uh, conservatory guy because it's like they're not paying you know for public therapy, and I, it's just that <laughs> somehow the quest, the big, the giant question, plus the sort of youth and and promise of these young, ki- it just got to me, and I couldn't bear it. <laughs> so because I was one of them at some point, you know. Yeah, and, no,
1: it's it's so interesting thinking about you know these young people who are starting out. You know, I talked to a lot of uh, actors and a lot of comedians on this podcast and people who are older and have had a whole career, you know, they've had all these opportunities. And especially just in this moment with the pandemic and everything, it seems like it must be such a hard time to be trying to start out and break into the business when things aren't happening in the same way.
0: Well, I think you're exactly right. And that's what happened. I think that's what I—that's what was dawning on me as I was answering the question. And I feel sorry for my own kids, you know, who are ninth and eleventh grade, my two kids. And I just feel like what a preposterous interpretation in their lives and what how unfair is this that my daughter can't have an 11th grade you know regular high school 11th grade it's like such an important moment in your life I know so,
1: yeah I think about that a lot as well I'm, I'm thankful to be you know where I am in my life and career and have gotten some of the big things you know done before all this but you oh, know, yeah totally. hopefully yes. hopefully things get back to normal soon but yeah to be in this to be you know that age right now is just I can't imagine uh, um, yeah, not fair yeah um, so, I mean, I think, you know, we'll get to a lot of other stuff, but I think we have to start with say by the Bell, which is okay. <laughs> exciting because th- this show is actually very nostalgic for me. I think I was like the perfect age when it came out. Um, I was watching it. It was, I was actually, I guess, watching the reruns because it was after, after school. Um, so it was like an after school show for me and it was, there was something about it and it's like, looking back, I don't quite know what it is. Cause it's like, it's not the funniest show, the original it's not, you know, there's something very over the top about it, but it really as a, you know, sort of 10, 11 year old for me, really connected with me and sort of imagining what high school was going to be like. Right. Um, and I know a lot of people have this very strong connection to it. So now you're kind of stepping into the the shoes of the, uh, you're not playing Mr. Belding, but you're a, a Mr. Belding, esque principal in this new iteration of the show. Um, did you have any connection to this show before you, before it came to you as a project?
0: I didn't I, actually, I'm going to be interviewing you, I think, because uh, <laughs> you, you are right in the sweet spot. You make a, really good point the people who were just under the age of the actors in the show in the 90s uh, that was quite real to they were thinking forward toward high school and what they saw was a tight group of friends bright colors a new life days full of incident and <laughs> intrigue and love and you know mm-hmm, all of it and yeah. to a large degree that's true that's why i was so that's why i'm so upset for my daughter but it's all true even in retrospect in reminiscence I think back at high school which was you know in the late 70s for me and it's also in those colors and I also had this notion of a, a tight group of uh, friends who were up to up to all kinds of shenanigans it's only partially a true I imagine I think I'm doing a lot of painting as I as I remember and as you are as you were looking forward to it you're doing a lot of painting and um, that's what Hollywood is good for. They help you dream and they help you remember, <laughs> you know, and that's what a reboot. That's why I, I, I'm in favor of reboots. And this particular one is, is really a reimagining. we say, because I'm not Mr. Bell. I'm somebody else entirely. I, you know, there's no research I need to do. I'm not playing Mr. Bell. I have his job in the same building and that's about it. Mario and Elizabeth are doing a reboot to some extent because yeah, they are the same reprising people reprising their Mar-
1: characters, yeah. Yeah.
0: They're reprising their characters. They're grown-up. They they have to imagine what happened in the 20 years in between, or 30 years, I can't remember what it is now. And they have to sort of pull their characters into the future. I don't. I'm making I'm making him up on the spot, all anew, all afresh. And he's a he's a very different guy than Mr. Belding is. Same position. Yes, I get. I'm basically a lot of the times a dunk, a dunk <laughs> tank clown, right? I, I'm on the butt of a lot of debasements, <laughs> and you know, uh, I get my status lowered a lot. You know, as all great comedy does. Mr. Morris, get your feet off my desk. Can I flip over your trash can and put him on that? No. In general, be less comfortable in here. What do you want? Lexi and I are in a parking spot war. But I was reading
1: this student manual and it gave me an idea. What if you gave me your spot and you Ubered from now on?
0: Mr. Morris, my car already is an Uber. But by the same rule, I would say that Tracy Wickfield, who is our creator and writer, has really figured something out. And she, it is an edgier comedy than uh, obviously the old Safe by the Bell, which was really. for a very specific audience originally, it was really for an after-school kids.
1: This one definitely seems to appeal to you know people like me as well who who were watched it as a kid and now you know have a more sort of adult humor sensibility. And she obviously worked on uh, Thirty Rock and then created um, Great News, which you were on, which was a, a really wonderful show as well. I imagine that's how you kind of connected with her for this one.
0: It is. I I told her toward the end of Great News, and this was true. I said, Tracy, you know, if you call all i'm coming yeah <laughs> this is the best uh, television uh, writing i've ever had and it's true the, cons- the her consistency and her ability to write jokes that actually have a sort of a have a deep ring in them like there's something going on there's some character issue going on inside the joke but there's unmistakably a laugh attached. The prow of the ship is the laugh. And that is exciting for a, a comic performer like myself. But what's really exciting is how deep the laugh can be because it's about a character. It's, a, it's about basic human needs, indignities, and things like that. It's really, the laughs really ring. And she does that. I think she uses me as, as a bit of a punching bag.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I think you could tell she likes writing for you because you really deliver the jokes and and you deliver this character that is it's a different character obviously in the two different shows but they might have some similarities in their sort of confidence uh misplaced confidence or <laughs> buffoonery at times and
0: And also it's it's um it's current. In other words, I am an old white man, and I'm finished. (laughs) It's over.
1: Yeah, that's where a lot of the humor comes from.
0: Yeah, the tide has receded. And uh, I'm standing there naked. (laughs) That's a joke that I think is a great joke. And it's an important one to make. I don't like the word important when we're (laughs) dealing with anything, really. But it does have uh, currency. and and, And as a result, it does it's funny. It gets people laughing because they get it. They get what the indignity is. And um, I'm really uh, happy to d- deliver that in the sort of the late, the later part of my career of <laughs> public service, as it were.
1: You know, you've become so known for, for comedy, you know, both through these shows and, of course, uh, you know, the Christopher Guest movies, which we'll get to. But that's really not, is that, that's not how you started out, right? In terms of uh, your work in, in the theater and, and everything. You weren't really on this comedy track at the beginning, were you?
0: Uh, no. I wasn't I it, the whole thing has come as a surprise to me and I'm continued I, I, I'm in a constant state of surprise um and then I have been for 30 years uh no I was mostly I was a stage actor I I didn't even do film or television until I was in my 30s somewhere most of that stage work was classics I was a tragedian to, to some extent yes I did a lot of comedy and I was happy to do it and it's fun but it, I didn't uh, what's the word for it now identify as as a comic Uh, and I do identify still myself when I wake up and if you ask me a question quickly when I'm not thinking I would say I'm a stage actor that's what I that's what I do that's what this works best that's what I know how to do the other I'm making up as I go along the reason I'm such a, a good improviser that I get hired as an improviser a lot is because I feel like in comedy, I'm making the whole thing up as I go along. <laughs> yeah. All I'm doing, I was saying in the, in this masterclass yesterday was, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm laying out the basic items of like really basic acting stuff. Like you, you want to show and not tell and that kind of thing. And I realized, I was like, look, the only reason I'm still working as a comedian, is because I have never I've never approached the job of comedy as comic. I just play the scenes. I just play the need, and the bigger the need in comedy, the funnier it is. So the the more trouble I'm in, uh, which you really want to be in in a drama, you want to be in trouble, and you want to have, and so you need to process in front of the audience. They dig that. They don't want to hear you with say conclusions or make speeches. They wanted to see you in trouble. Comedy loves trouble. I remember a long time ago, we were just starting... We were doing Best in Show, right? And uh, Chris Christopher Guest, who was the director... The preparation for these films is, is strange because there's no script. There's no script to read. So, but we would sit down and, and have lunch meet. I remember Michael and uh, McKeon and Eugene Levy and Chris... Eugene co-wrote it with Chris. Sat down and I remember Christopher saying to both of us, because we were playing a couple in the movie, it would be great if, if the two of you were... Happier, or had a less rocky road, because so many of the other couples in the movie are in distress. They're really distressed relationships.
1: And you, you guys are kind of the happy, the happy couple in the movie.
0: Yeah, and I think I, I remember. I don't know if it actually happened, but I remember looking at Michael, and I think the mind meld was like, "I don't want to be happy. <laughs> That's not funny. That's not funny. Not, happy people aren't funny." Uh, and you, you you want to have, you know, uh, problems. You want to have mental illness. <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> I do think that, well, it's two things. Number one, I'm still working as mostly a comedian in Hollywood because it's safe to hire me as a comedian because I have a,
1: a track record. They know what they're getting.
0: Right, no one's going to get fired if they hire me, right? Because I, in, in a comedy, they may get fired if they hire me in a drama, <laughs> you know. And, I, and it doesn't work out, um, but it's it's about a track record in Hollywood. And and for some reason, well, I actually know the reason. But I've been sort of ghettoed into the comedy landscape, and I'm not complaining. <laughs> I'm listen, I'm working, you know, and it's great. And I do drama every now and then, so it's just fine. I don't do a lot of stage, but that's that's too bad. But um Anyway, and I, I do think it's uh, my longevity has a lot to do with my uh, basic theater chops.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's something dependable about it that, as you said, when people hire you, they know that you're going to deliver.
0: Yeah. I have a bag of tricks and tools that I <laughs> pull out and and uh, they're very useful. And also it's just the basics. I, it's like it's acting 101 always for me in comedy. Certainly. What do you want? What's the problem? Fix it.
1: So, you know, making that transition from theater to film, I think if there's a, if there's a big break that you had, it was probably the late shift, right? Where you played David Letterman in that kind of now infamous or famous, depending on how you look at it, (laughs) uh, TV movie. So where were you in your career at that time when you got that part? And was that a really big deal to, to get cast as david letterman
0: yeah i was and um i was very much a stage actor i was probably the last name on the last casting list and the last casting session where they actually do what they hate to do uh which is because none of the Im- impersonators and none of the famous people would get near the part because david letterman at the time was a very powerful person he was on television every single night and he had not afraid to say things uh you know and he certainly wasn't when we were making the movie. Um, and, uh, so there I was and I, I, you know, I, I went in and I, I said, listen, I don't do a David Letterman impersonation, but I think if, you know, I know from the stage, because I played famous people on stage I played like Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, I can name a bunch of famous people. No one cares what Teddy Roosevelt actually sounded like. They want you to tell a story that they, that is credible, that I had to understand David Letterman and just talk out loud and it would work, you know, it's like a puppet show. Puppets don't look like real people, but if you do it right within two minutes, you want to know what happens to the dragon puppet. It's <laughs> yeah. really important, you know? So, <laughs> and so I just, I picked up a pen, a lot of these guys in the waiting room, they had the, you know, teeth and they had cigars and all these things. And uh, I just picked up a pencil and and said, uh, use it just as a cigar. And I just sort of, you know, summoned my Midwest, uh, you know, I'm not a Midwesterner, but I say, like, what is this guy? He's, a, he's got a really, he's got a real sturdy backbone. He's a Midwesterner. He's a moralist. You know, everybody, everybody, everybody's a hamburger and they need to be cut down you know and and, um and so i just sort of summoned that thing and i didn't do an imitation and uh betty thomas who told me who directed it said you know you you by far weren't the best imitator of david letterman but i felt like for a moment he was in the room so you know what i mean so i think that that again that was just acting 101 it was just stage utility acting you know that's all it was It wasn't that bad, Dave. Uh, Okay, we had a little trouble with the first bit, but Sandra was good and you were good with her. Oh, I sucked, Morty. And the whole show sucked because I sucked. I don't don't belong in network television. I belong in the Muncie driving gravel. You got great laughs. Oh, bullshit. If that audience were any deader, there'd be guys in the lab coats going through Mm -hmm. harvesting organs. Anyway, the job itself was hard enough to be a person who's alive and well and everyone knows. The aftermath of the job, I did not, I had no experience of the press circus and the, uh, as you say, the notoriety of it or the infamous, uh, the infamity of it. And, um, uh, that's a new word. And I had no idea what that was and I knew how to handle it. But the lasting impact was strangely, some people in Hollywood got interested in me. They liked my performance and they, they would pitch me to a, you know, a, television network or something. And and, and the television people were basically saying, what do we want with an impersonator? We don't want, you know, if we want an impersonator, we just hire one. And and they were like, no, 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 he's not an impersonator. If you watch the performance, yeah. it's not
1: that. He's an actor. It's something, else.
0: <laughs> it's something else. But that's hard. That's a hard sell on it for anybody who, who does that sort of work. And it really, to to your question, from that moment on, because I played a comedian, I was a comedian,
1: yeah, <laughs> even uh, though it's not a, it's not really a comedy film.
0: It's not a comic role at all. I don't think there's a single laugh in the movie. <laughs> that I yeah. Get. And I'm not intended to get a laugh in the movie, um, and, and I was baffled. And I was just like, all I was going up for was comedy. And thankfully, pretty early on after the film, Christopher Guest uh, got on to me uh, through a few different connections, and then that started got set up. And uh, then, and then you know, it was such a tiny job in Hollywood, still is, that I was happy to say, okay, I'm in. I, I'll be a com- I'll be an imp- a comic improvisational actor. <laughs> None of these things would have been interesting, you know, five years before. None of those words.
1: <laughs> before before we get back to best in show, though, did you ever hear from uh, David Letterman what he thought of your uh, performance?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, you know, um, he made no bones about what he thought of my performance. Uh, he said it every night on the show, and he beat <laughs> me up really soundly, which was uh, surreal because I was you know originally I took the job I was a stage actor. I had very little money. I was living in New York. I was eating ramen. Uh, suddenly, I was being attacked by one of the most famous uh, uh, rich people alive. Uh, and every night, my friends would call me up and they said, did you hear what he show- said about you last night? And, you know, uh, it, was, it was surreal. And we, I hadn't even finished the movie yet. I actually don't blame him. He, he, he's a private person. He didn't like the project.
1: Yeah, he didn't want the movie to exist. It wasn't necessarily about you. Yeah,
0: but you know what? I was the easy target because I. It didn't matter what happened to me, you know. If he be beat up on CBS, he always beats up on CBS. Those were his bosses, and it doesn't really play, you know. I was just trying to fix the steering column on my Subaru. That's why I took the job.
1: <laughs> yeah. In
0: hindsight, I don't. I don't have much animosity or blame for David Letterman. He's a person who. He's a public person. He should expect to have some kind of comment or representation in the media, which he does. He just didn't like this one because it showed him at home. Yep, he doesn't want yep, to be seen yep. at home. I don't blame him. I don't want to be seen at home. <laughs> Except,
1: <laughs> for right no. Except for right now. Except for right now. Coming up, John looks back at Best in Show 20 years after its release and explains why he almost certainly wouldn't get cast in that role today. So now let's go to Best in Show, which is just one of my all-time favorite films. I watched it last night again because I I wanted to to catch up on it again and just... um was such, it was, you know, I was laughing out loud for the 20th time and it's the 20th anniversary we just passed, which is kind of amazing um, and hard to believe.
0: I can't believe it.
1: So how did you, how did you get on Christopher Guest's radar and how did you end up in that film? And and what, what do you remember from sort of the, the beginnings of that process?
0: Well, um, you know, so I had done the Letterman movie and Ed Begley was in that movie he played um, one of the executive, Rod Perth or something. I can't remember who. All of them were real people. It was really scary, you know, all these real people. Warren Littlefield, people who were getting me jobs or not, were being represented in the movie by Bob Balladay.
1: It's a risky job, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they hated the movie and I walk in for an audition. They're not going to be nice to me. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, he obviously is very close with uh, Christopher and had been for many years and I think he mentioned me because uh, there was a job that, there was something that Chris and Gene were doing, Gene Levy, uh, an H- for an HBO uh, comedy pilot and he needed a gay character and uh I think Chris didn't want to do it himself because he had just done a gay thing with Guffman, uh, right? yeah, corky, and I think Ed mentioned me because I had improvised a lot quite a lot on the set of uh, the letterman, and so he thought, oh, he's a good improviser and I was just in i was still living in New York at the time. I was I was a New York actor. I was, a, you know, as I said, a stage actor in New York. And this was a strange interruption in my career. But anyway, Chris met me. Hired, he trusts his actors so much that, you know, it's like, Ed liked me, so I'll like him. You know, <laughs> so, you know and eventually he put me in, um, it was actually pretty quickly, put me in uh, this pilot, which Christopher and and Eugene were doing called, uh, aptly titled DOA. Um, which, <laughs> <laughs> but represented the it was a talent agency it was the dorkman orfkin talent agency <laughs> and um i think uh, gene was manny dorkman and chris was dick whatever I can't, <laughs> I can't even say it's like a tongue twister and we did it. It was super funny. It was great, and HBO eventually didn't didn't run with it.
1: So it's too bad. I would have liked to see that. It's very,
0: very funny. It kind of turned in much later to the movie for your consideration. Pieces,
1: yeah, I, yeah. I
0: think Gene like reprised his character from from that Manny Manny Dorkman Vic right, Orfman yeah. or what Orfman. <laughs> I can't remember anyway. <laughs> So it happened. It collapsed. I was depressed. It was terrible. I I just thought, oh my god, to to be able to do this show every week, you know, it's so funny, and the, the improv, the people that are in it were so incredible, and it was so good. Didn't go, and I was just like licking my wounds. And Chris called up, and he says, "Listen, I want you to do this." movie about dogs that we, that I wanted to do <laughs> up in Vancouver. And I was like, great, that sounds really fun. <laughs> you know? And he's like, and I want you to play, there's a gay couple in the movie. I want you to do that. Cause I had just done this gay character.
1: So he knew, he knew you could do it.
0: Yeah. For DOA. I was a little bit like, because I had done a long series of gay roles on stage in New York. I, I, there was a great Paul Rudnick play, that I, called jeffrey i was the title character i did it for two years or something you know and that was a big gay thing and again i have nothing against gay at all it's just that as an actor you want to move around a lot of just is like i had just done four projects
1: and you don't like, want to okay, get stuck but, in that in that thing. yeah
0: and it's not like gay people are all the same it's just that i have to i don't know it just rhymes too much i want to i want to spread my wings a little bit or take a break and then do it again.
1: Yeah. It's funny. I talked to, uh, I talked to Jane Lynch about, this uh, movie and she was on the podcast uh, last year and it was talking to her about it was so interesting because she it was sort of a big deal for her to play to have her breakthrough role be a, a gay character and that's kind of and she you know has has because she is gay and she wanted to and she she felt like that was important to show and it's almost like yeah there's kind of a flip side or something different about you know being typecast as as a gay character in, in the other sense yeah. Yeah there is it
0: was also a slightly different time I actually I don't know the atmosphere now I was very different so i i doubt that i would ever that i would even be cast as a gay character because it, it would seem not pc or something like that there's so many great actors out there who are gay and maybe they could hold the flag
1: to have you and michael mckeon as a couple maybe wouldn't happen today
0: it wouldn't it didn't yeah i would feel funky uh, these days i think and it probably should but anyway so i was used to to the process uh because i had done doa with chris and some of the people in the movie had done guffman you know parker and michael uh, hitchcock and and uh, several other gene obviously Catherine.
1: O'Hara, yeah. yeah so you
0: know they they were used to to that process and improvisation for me uh, was always just um It was never a destination. It was just a tool. You you sometimes use improvisation when you're in rehearsal for, you know, a real play, like, you know, an Aldi play or something, in order to sort of push the scene around and open it up to see where it may be happy and then go back to the script, you know, for the audience. But you push it around sometimes with improvisation and that's really the extent of improv that it was in my career but I was certainly not afraid of improv in any way because I had done it and it's not a great impediment to me you know Um, because again let's go back to what it is If I'm in a scene with Michael McKean, I'm a stage actor. I'm just going to, I'm going to identify the scene, why they're talking out loud. Why do people talk out loud (laughs) is really what acting means. If you can solve that, you're a great actor. And so it's really basic stuff, you know, and of course, 90% of it is listening. Uh, Also something that a lot of actors uh, need to work on. Don't do very well. And you can spot it right away.
1: Yeah, they they wait for their line and then they say it.
0: And generally, if you listen, you're never in trouble. You will know what to say. You will respond because that's the human animal does that. If you take something in, you respond, and then there's your line. If it's funny, great. If it's not funny, Chris is never on never puts you on a laugh clock. He's much more interested in behavior than he is in laughs than jokes. And that's why those movies live. It's because they're not on a laugh clock and they're not desperate to get a shallow reaction. And Christopher's movies don't get into those traps. It's always something, there's something about the people in the movies that you uh, have empathy about and you relate to. There's, quote, a heart, you know, you just feel like they love, they love something that's not, that from the outside is not cool and it's not the right thing to love or whatever it is, you know. They're too into their dog, they're into folk music and it's not important, whatever they are, you know. And to watch somebody be lit up and to love something so much that may not be interesting or cool to other people, there's something about it. You you feel them in some way because that's you and you're not admitting it. So (laughs) I think that's a why those movies work so well. And we're not on a laugh clock. We get funny, the paradox is, when you're not on a laugh clock, you get more laughs.
1: Do you remember the first scene that you shot in that movie?
0: Yes, I do. It was the I believe it was the first scene that we that Michael and I are in. It was the the meat store.
1: The meat market, yeah. You know,
0: when we walk up and we're buying meat for the dogs.
1: Come on, we got everything. We got uh, all fresh cuts today. We got yeah. top loin, porterhouse, T-bone, blade, ball tip, tri-tip, chuck. We got we got everything. Amazing. So
0: basically, you know, meat <laughs> Got a lot of meat. Oh, good. Got a lot of meat. Uh, Tyrone, uh, Tyrone would like those beef kidneys, so how about about a half pound of those? No, not the kidneys. It's the um, the membranes. I don't want to pull I'll those things off. I'll take care of the membranes. Don't I mean, worry about it. Randy, you could pull the membrane off. Will you stop it? Uh, I think a little bit of the salmon, maybe a half pound right, of the salmon, yeah, yeah, half okay. pound of the kidneys. Half pound. And go. do me a favor. Just get one of those pepperoni sticks out. I just want to hold it. Will <laughs> you stop it? <laughs> There's two wonderful performances in that movie. And then there's one extraordinary performance in that movie. And I'll name The two of them that really were interesting to me were the guy who played the butcher, who his instincts as a straight man were impeccable. It's hard to do. It's super hard to do. It's like you're you're doing four things at once, you know? And the other guy, uh, which is a little more obvious, is the cashier that Parker yells at, about the Busy bee.
1: Yes, yes.
0: That's an extraordinary performance. Go and watch it. It's very hard to do what he's doing. He's helpful. <laughs> he's positive. He's staying in. He's doing his job, both as an actor and as a cashier. And he's getting great material out of Parker.
1: He really, yeah, you're right.
0: It's extraordinary work. The grandmaster that the, the, he grabbed the brass ring is Jim Piddick, who sits next to Fred Willard, and keeps Fred going. <laughs> Jim didn't know a fucking thing about dog shows. And he's making it all up on... He has no idea what he's talking
1: about. Oh, my God. He
0: seems totally authoritative. It doesn't matter if what he's saying is right or wrong, because you just want to sit in his lap and have him say things to you. You know, <laughs> And he is constantly feeding uh, Fred, and then a light comment a light extra joke an appendix joke on Fred's big womper Fred will do a womper and then he's got a light appendix on it which is which continues the laugh and then he develops Fred's next joke for him you know It's really very fine work and from a very intelligent actor and a very good actor.
1: I wanted to ask you about Fred Willard, who, of course, you know, we lost this past year and um, it's just an incredible talent as well. Do you have any memories from working with him that that stand out?
0: Yeah, it's a great, great loss, a big influence on me. On my comedic career, and to some extent, I can't say you have I've inherited a mantle, but I'm very much in his wake and his footsteps because of the types of things I've been doing. Ron Todman in Say by the Bell uh, is very much a Fred Willard type character
1: the uh this stuff you do in pitch perfect as well came to mind as, as something that's influenced by him i could tell
0: obviously pitch perfect although interestingly Fre- you know fred there's a great line martin Mall said it uh mccann reminded me of it which is uh, fred didn't use his turn signals and what that <laughs> means <laughs> what that means is that he was like he was an incredibly positive performer a very jovial happy performer that was always in contrast to the to the absolutely ridiculous things he would say, you <laughs> would have to constantly be squaring the two. He looked like the, he looked like a painting of a pedestrian. Like if you, <laughs> gave, a, if you gave an eleven-year-old a pencil and said, "Draw a man," that's what they would draw. Fred Willard, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and this strange life was in him. This strange life. He was an absolute filing cabinet for vaudeville you know, pull-the-rug-out jokes. So there was a huge strain of vaudeville, in Fr- as there is in Chris Gaston's incident. He, like Maury Amsterdam, you know, you could, you could say um, a bath towel and, you know, a street lamp. And the joke would be there, bang. And it would be some joke that probably existed in some other form, you know. Bud Abbott said it, you know. And it was pulled out of history right up into, Fr- like his whole, you know, like the, the supercomputer of uh of references and fred was daunting beautiful and um and it was almost fun to have him do you just mention and you know paul dooley was a little bit like this too he's a lot he's movies, you know you just say elvis and um (laughs) hot chocolate and then suddenly there's four jokes (laughs) (laughs) and so it was it was beautiful to to watch him work he was a very gentle a very lovely gentle warm person Uh, shy Uh, as many great comedians are. He he had a very high bar for himself. He wanted everything to fire. I can't imagine what kind of a pickle that would put him in. Uh, he wrote it very well. Maybe he wasn't feeling that way. It would when I get myself a high bar that everything has to be great, it's it's uh, it's wearing. It it's uh, it's very hard to sustain. And Fred did it. He put that bar up and he cleared it every single time. It's a great career. <laughs> Fare away, fare away, and her main top sail To the fur
1: below oh, no, the wily hold on. Hold on, hold on. Oh. One second, please. Technical. I got an idea, a very Hello. literate reference. I don't know if you're familiar with a book about a, a, a pirate captain. His name is Moby Dick. He was chasing a, some big whale. And he had a catchphrase. He'd always yell out, There
0: she blows! So I thought if you could do that, we'd have someone on stage drench the whole group with water and um you could look at the camera and say hey what happened and every time
1: another thing of water and by then you're all soaked even the ladies and at the end of the song you turn the guitars
0: and all upside down and water splashes out kerplunk it's just a thought
1: so you obviously, you know, have kept working with Christopher Guest over the years. And one thing that I, I was watching another interview that you did, and you said something like, one of the hard parts about it is that you film so much material, and then you have to, things get cut out inevitably. And I'm wondering if there's something that stands out from any of the films that you improvised, that you loved, that that got cut out, and that you miss.
0: Yeah, oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, you know, it's really a crime, is how much... Chris cuts himself out and we are always pissed off about that. And we're always giving him a hard time. He's really brutal. He's too much a gentleman. Finally, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's unseemly to, to show your stuff. So, you know what I mean? There is some, there's like, there's a courtliness about him that just drives us crazy because some of that stuff is so funny that he would be doing it. And yes, he puts himself in the movie, but you know, if you watch Best in Show, he's pretty light in that movie. There's not, there's not a lot of Chris. There's actually not a lot of Ian Michael, actually, he, although we're in very bright colors. The scenes are bright and energetic. So it feels like there's quite a lot, but there's not that much of us yeah there's
1: really only well, look, yeah looking back at it it's like a handful of scenes is really yeah, what, what a, it is just a two yeah.
0: handful of scenes and really the 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 narrative burden is being put mostly on gene and catherine and to some extent uh on uh, on michael and parker you know those are the, those are the interesting relationships that are dynamic and changing and uh, that's where the drama is as it were you know? Michael and I, our, our relationship doesn't change. It's a good relationship at the top. It's a good relationship at the end. The whole dog show was like, oh, that was fun, you know. Oh, we lost. That is something you don't want as an actor. But boy, was I glad to have it because because it was it was uh, one of the, my favorite experiences uh, working on. I'm sorry. What was the original question?
1: If there was something that you would improvise that you uh, that you miss?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. One pops out in Best in Show was Michael and I, Christopher. You know, he was thinking of a sort of. B roll stuff like what having us walk around the apartment while voiceover narrative is sort of doing, doing a plot, you know, doing laying pipe of some sort. And you know, it's just B roll. We're walking around, we're making coffee, we're petting our dogs or whatever. And he thought one of the things what would be funny is for the two of us to be on the couch watching. A movie, and and he was like, "Well, what what do you think it it should be?" And um, uh, we ca- I can't remember why we came up. I think we came up with it because Michael does a devastating Vincent Price impersonation, and um, so we were watching uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum 3D, and I think we had 3D glasses on. And um, basically, we did sort of mystery science theater for like the whole fucking movie. <laughs> it was like not. <laughs> Not usable at all. You know, and actually not even a frame of it appears in the final kind of best in show. But that was about as hard as I've had to work to not laugh uh, while we're... I don't generally... Laugh while I'm working. It's I. Those filters are much deteriorated now at my age. I laugh all the time and I cry for God's sake. It's for, it's so unseen. But I was kind of an Iron Man in those days. I knew my lines and I I did the job. And
1: you weren't going to break. No, 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 no. That's for kids.
0: <laughs> and uh, that I do I do remember. I would say that the exception to that was a movie that I made with Martin Short uh, called uh, Jiminy Glick and Lala Wood, which oh, I was yes. I was such a mess, uh, as many people are when they're working with Marty. Um, I eventually turned to Marty and I said, "You, I think you should fire me. And I was not kidding. I said, "You, <laughs> I don't think I... I'm not of use. Because you were cracking up so much? I couldn't stop laughing. So I was like, what the <laughs> fuck am I doing in this movie? Just get somebody else. It's not that hard to do this part. So... You know <laughs> you know uh, but I couldn't he was so goddamn funny um, and and of course, you know I don't the the movie this is typical you know I couldn't stop laughing on the set and then the movie comes out and no one really cares it's terrible and and also or a movie that is really unpleasant to shoot uh, will show up and and it'll be like a giant hit
1: It's funny thing you know you mentioned uh, for your consideration, which is another which is one of my favorites and one that maybe didn't get as much attention or or love as some of the earlier, you know, Christopher Guest movies at the time. And it also kind of goes back to that, that late shift thing where it's really skewering Hollywood in a more direct way than I think it was, people were, you know, used to or expecting or could, could handle. Do you think that played into any of that where it was like the satire was a little too, too sharp for, for some people?
0: Yeah. I guess there's an old shibboleth, you know, about like people don't, generally make inside movies you know a couple of them do well you know I, the player that's you know movies that are just movies about hollywood there's something about the audience that doesn't want to see the sausage making they they want as to go back to the beginning of their conversation they want to have this dreamy experience of you know Saved by the Bell, <laughs> which you remember <laughs> or you were looking forward to. It's a dream you were having. And to say, no, 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 your dreams are, they're sorted, and they're not what you think they are, <laughs> you know what I mean? People are curious. They want to they peek behind the curtain. And it's strange because that's why that Wizard of Oz moment is so powerful. There's something that, like, the audience, like, has a full collapse in that moment because everything that they were watching was wrong. You know, everything that they believed was wrong. The characters as well as the audience. It's a very profound moment. That's why it's become part of our culture to say, the man behind the curtain, the man behind the curtain. And I think, for your consideration, is a, is, is a victim of, of that to a large as many movies about Hollywood have been. They're much beloved by a, a coterie, often people who are who are in the business, because that's what they do all day. They recognize it, but the other people don't want to recognize it. They want to see the. They don't. They just want to eat the sausage. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so um, I loved that movie too. I actually it was my. It was definitely my favorite character that I played in a Christopher Guest movie. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't.
1: Know. It's a very funny character.
0: It is. I love that character. Um, I just liked being him there was something
1: <laughs> he's a publicist right a
0: publicist he, it was cory tapped and he had had a mental breakdown and he was really behind he kept trying to you know have meetings at hamburger hamlet on, <laughs> <you know? laughs> and it didn't exist anymore and he lived <laughs> you know, we have this backstory uh, chris and i used to laugh about it a lot you know that he that he lived in a in a ground floor apartment in Marina Del Rey, one of those giant, weird, round condo buildings, but not one that's, that you could see the ocean from. It was facing the other way. It was, <laughs> it was on ground floor on the parking lot. And, and of course the germ of the idea came of, of uh, i always said one of the most boring things a person can say is that they have indian and and so i sort of took that and ran with it and the other thing is to obviously tell you the dream they had last night but who is the person who wants to have certified indian blood and what does it mean you know so that's the sort of, that was the beginning of my
1: and to tell to tell everyone about tell it. everybody
0: about it there's some it somehow confers upon them some kind of authenticity, and I, I believe my character had a certificate that he talks about that's framed <laughs> on the wall, that it's a you know, one-eighth mighty Choctaw, and all that, you know. That's so so I don't know, I just, uh, uh, I guess what it is, is that I was amused <laughs> by the character. I'm not sure the audience was, but I was amused by the character. Ms. Campanella, this publicity campaign is to be run with military precision. It is to be timely, quantifiable, and oratund. Do you know what that means? No. I warn you. These are actors. In every actor there lives a tiger, a pig, an ass, and a nightingale. You never know which one's gonna show up. Don't make assumptions about the talent. Don't assume that the talent can hear well. Don't assume they know the plot of the film. Don't assume that they have living parents. Don't assume that they don't have a drop of Indian blood. Question. Do I look like I have Indian blood? Not at all. Question. Would it surprise you to learn that I am one-eighth mighty Choctaw. It would. The question, would it astound you to learn that here on the set, I am Corey Taft, but when I'm at home, I'm Jojo. On the other hand, I will say, I have a great show story, which I'm very proud of. I was in a restaurant once, I'm gonna fuck the story out. I'm sorry, because I can't quite remember the line, but I'm gonna tell you anyway, you can cut it. Um, and I'm eating at my restaurant with my wife, And, uh, we're finished and the waiter, uh, puts down the check and this happens often, you know, waiters are very professional in Los Angeles, puts down the check. And then he says, Oh, Mr. Higgins, I really enjoyed doing your movie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And then it's over, right? Happens all the time probably because he's an actor himself and he's being respectful, but he does want to express something. And I'm so grateful to have it in this one. He said, I'm, I'm really uh, a fan of your work. I appreciate you giving me many hours. of enjoyment. Thank you. It's very nice of you. And he says, and just to prove it to you. And he pulls up a sleeve, (laughs) and tattooed on his arm, right down his arm in cursive writing is a line that I said that I made up in (laughs) for your consideration which is uh, and i'm gonna fuck it up because believe me the one thing i can't remember is any line i've ever said <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: you know, yeah. especially if you made watch, it up in the moment
0: i don't watch these movies <laughs> it's not, i'm not like norman Desmond watching my old movies yeah. you know yeah. so is um something like in every actor there lives a tiger and a pig and a something and a ass, and you never know which one's going to show up for work, or or something like that. Anyway, it it was a good line, it was a funny line, but I don't remember, I just, you know, said it. So, but it it was a tiger, a pig, a lion, and I don't remember what the four animals were. Anyway, I was kind of like, wow. I'm just like, my God, I said that. And now it's tattooed on somebody's <laughs> arm. <laughs> this, this is forever. madness. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. But it made sense to me in, in in a funny way. It's like, he he's an actor. He's proud of being an actor. He takes delight in that. And why not? If you're going to have a tattoo, you know, teacher's have you know the the Buddhist sign for teacher tattooed yeah. on their <laughs> ankle? You know why can't he have that on his arm?
1: You know it meant something to him. Yeah, I like that. So the way we usually end these podcasts is I ask comedians about another comedian who's really made them laugh the hardest in their life. I feel like you kind of already answered this with the uh the Martin Short story. But when you look back in the times when you when you did break on set, maybe uh, is there a moment that stands out to you where you just we couldn't start stop laughing uh in a scene?
0: Well, yeah, certainly. the... I'm going to answer a slightly other question to the left of that question, just because I feel like I did with the Marty, the Martin Short thing. I think that was the answer. But a comedian, uh, and I'm going to use the quotation on that word, comedian, that was a huge influence on me and that I stood in awe of was uh, Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones is the director of a lot of the Warner Brothers uh, cartoons, Bugs Bunny cartoons and others in the in the the late 50s and 60s. And what Chuck Jones showed me as a young actor was the sort of science of a laugh, a laugh. And it's funny when Bugs Bunny raises his eyebrow on frame 25, and it's not funny if he raises it on frame 26. Why? Why not? How did he know? And can I do it? So, when I watch something that Chuck Jones directed, say, you know, you can watch it in a few weeks, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It's an extraordinary performance by Chuck Jones to watch his handling of the Grinch's performance as a comedic performance. It's, an ex- it's a beautiful performance. It's super funny, and it's filled with drama, angst, unhappiness, process, problems, like Daffy Duck is all the time. His worst instincts drive him. He's constantly frustrated by what's happening inside of him. Bugs Bunny is the opposite of a dramatic character. He's totally at ease. He has no problems. He has no issues. Every every problem that confronts him is handled uh, handily. (laughs) <laughs> and Daffy's left in the dust He's a wonderful comic character And it's a little, I know It sounds silly to talk about them As like they're real characters But there is a man behind that And it's Chuck Jones And he taught me that You can be a flat comic character Made out of paint and celluloid Not even real, a duck And have all fires, all cylinders firing in a comic performance. All the angst and the, and the self-doubt. And these are things that push comedy forward. And Chuck Jones made a science of it because for him, it had to be science.
1: Yeah, he couldn't he's just little, go on instinct, yeah. Yeah, he couldn't just make... He had to like say,
0: well, he's going to raise that eyebrow. It's No, that's too soon. That's too late. Right there, 26. Put it up on 26, right? And, and a little bit like Fred Willard, he was almost mm-hmm. never wrong... Watch Watch the Grinch. You'll see. Just watch him. Just watch the Grinch. There's others you can watch too, but just watch that character. It is a great comic character and moving, profoundly moving. Obviously, this is a sort of a seminal piece of work that Dr. Seuss has, has created. We know that because we keep watching it and it means something to us. <laughs> and I think we are the Grinch and we need to go through that. We need to go through what he goes through. And Chuck Jones is the, is the guy who showed us to us in, in that thing. And I, I sla- I'm I slavishly devoted to his ex- scientific expertise. Yeah, uh, wow.
1: uh, I love that. Well, John, I, I have to tell you, I, I don't have any tattoos, but your work has meant <laughs> a lot to me in, <laughs> over these many years. I knew I shouldn't <laughs> have told you that story. <laughs> but thank you for, for everything that you do and, and thanks for talking with me.
0: Thank you. I do appreciate it. Those were very difficult questions and I'll never do it with you again. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, good thing we covered everything then. <laughs> Absolutely. I've got nothing left. I'm spent.
1: Thank you so much to John Michael Higgins. That was such a fun conversation, and I hope you all got as much out of it as I did. You can stream all 10 new episodes of Say by the Bell on Peacock right now. Especially if you were a fan of the show growing up like I was, I think you'll really get a kick out of it. And if you're enjoying this podcast, how about giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.